You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg San Francisco Bureau. And I'm Ed Ludlow. This is Bloomberg Technology. Earnings, earnings, earnings. Tesla, IBM layoffs. We know the stories. They come thick and fast. They do. And the fact that we had such a volatile day of trading, we managed to push off those lows. Microsoft didn't right. manage to hold us down. But we've got to get to some of these earnings that still come after the bell. Tesla, one of them, accelerating cost reduction plans as profit it tops analyst estimates. Plus, the Senate takes up a bill to ban TikTok nationwide after dozens of universities take action to block the Chinese-owned app. And the space company Rocket Lab lifts off from the Virginia space area as its first U.S. launch. Could this become a SpaceX, a small payload? Earnings continues and Tesla's the one we've been waiting for, partly because there are so many headlines all the time, but partly because this is a global company with global vision of what's happening with the consumer. Tesla put a lot of emphasis that its China plant was where a lot of the problems were, yet come straight to after hours reaction. We bounced around and the market wasn't really sure what to make of it. Top and bottom line B, I go straight to fourth quarter adjusted EPS, $1.19 a share. Because slightly above expectations, the big takeaway, I suppose, beyond that is... Tesla committing to this compounded annual growth rate of 50%, saying they'll do around 1.8 million units in production 2023. Let's get straight to Bloomberg's Sean O'Kane over in Austin, Texas. Sean, give us the main takeaways from this earnings print. Well, I think one of the big things is that we realize there's maybe a little bit of a hit to the margins, but I think not as much as people are expecting. Uh, you know, it's obviously not the kind of margin growth that Tesla has been working with over the last couple of quarters. But we have to remember that their biggest cuts that they've made uh, to their pricing came after Q4. So I think there's going to be a lot more of the margin story uh, to be told when we get to the next earnings call. So for this one, I think one of the big things yeah. we're looking at is is really just, you know, how, how much inventory they left the year with, 16 days of in- inventory, the most that they've had uh, since yeah. 2018, exiting a year. And, and, and yeah, those troubles that they had in China. 
Shauna Kane, thank you for the breakdown. We've just got some breaking news coming from another key technology platform. You all know it, Meta Platforms, making its decision ending the suspension of Trump's accounts. Well, we understand they reinstand reinstating Trump's Facebook and Instagram accounts after two years, of course, of being banned from the platforms. It says it's ending the suspension of Trump's accounts across Instagram and indeed across Facebook, following, of course, what happened on January 6th on Capitol Hill back in 2021. We'll have more of that a little bit later in the show. And indeed, digital world acquisition shares are falling 3% post-market in reaction to that. But let's get back to the story of the day when it comes to Tesla. And, of course, the numbers that we got out from the company and profit beating. Tasha Keeney, we're pleased to say, Art Director of Investment Analysis and Institutional Strategies is with us. And, Tasha, of course, you're bullish. You're bullish on Tesla in the long term. In the here and the now, the production focus, is there the demand to meet it? Well, you're absolutely right. You know, our, our focus is over uh, the five-year forecast. Um, our, you know, Tesla's our top position in our IRKQ ETF. Um, but... So in, in terms of, you know, this this production goal, um, you know, they, they did mention, I think if you go back to 2020, they, they're still on track over, you know, a number of years to meet their um, 50% compound annual growth rate. I think that the fears of, um, you know, margin and demand troubles are pretty overblown. You know, our research, we've used Wright's Law to forecast um, Tesla's gross margins over time. And basically for every cumulative doubling in production, you get a corresponding reduction in price. We also know that they're unveiling a new vehicle platform, which is uh, should be roughly half the cost of the Model 3 and Y. I think that could be a custom-built autonomous vehicle. That's going to help margins. It's going to give a huge bump to margins in the long term because I think um, autonomous platforms could have really attractive margin structures and recurring revenue associated with them. Um, and then, you know, the last thing I'll add is, like, the main story here is that EVs are growing, right? So EVs as a category grew 60% year over year, while gas-powered cars were down, like, 7%. So that's where Tesla is. I'd, I'd be worried about traditional autos, if anything. Are you worried in any way about the impact of Elon Musk himself on demand for Tesla's going forward? Is in any way that being shown up in the demand erosion? Yeah, Elon Musk has always been a pretty controversial figure. Um, you know, I, I'd say at a minimum, what, what do we have to, to go by? It's really Tesla's results. Um, you know, again, so Tesla alone in the fourth quarter, we know grew sales by 40% year over year, while in that same quarter, um, global auto sales were down roughly eight. So that's what we have to go off of. Um, you know, he's a he's a cult figure. I think he's really the person to drive the company towards reaching that full self-driving goal um, where you can actually launch an autonomous ride hill platform. Um, you know, so we're happy that uh, he's committed to Tesla and sticking on for that. Tash, I want to bring some, some more information, I suppose, to our audience about what you were talking about. In the shareholder deck, Tesla's talking about its next generation vehicle platform under development, additional details to be shared at the Investor Day, March the 1st, 2023. I think that's what you were saying about your, you suspect that that is some form of fully autonomous vehicle for the future. I want to bring it back to the here and now again, because mm -hmm. a lot of what Tesla hinted at was the problems of 2024 were largely China related. It, it basically talked about the production issues largely being centered on the Shanghai plant. You look at margins where they came in, you look around the narrative on ASP's average selling price. We went to our audience, OK, and we said, did those price cuts in North America, Europe, China, push you to consider buying a Tesla. These are the results. Uh, pretty clear, although I would point out they changed over the course of the day, you know, with, with a good number of ballots cast, I suppose. 
yes, Tesla's global price cuts have tempted at least our audience to buy. Affordability. Is Tesla too Mm -hmm. expensive right now for a consumer? You know, I, I think so. First of all, and I'm glad you showed that chart. One of the things that we learned is that since the price cuts, um, you know, lead times have actually extended a bit. So we do know, you know, we were already getting sort of initial indications of demand here. We also know that the price cuts made um, more vehicles eligible for tax credits. Of course, we don't actually model tax credits in our analysis. We think uh, EVs are the solution longer term compared to gas powered cars, uh, regardless of regulation. Um, so, you know, I, I, again, I, I think really that that's the picture here. Um, that electric vehicles are taking share. Tesla's the market leader. Um, they've just invested in, in additional capacity. Um, you know, they're at a single-digit low percentage points of total auto sales. So I, I think there's still Tesla is um, and EVs again still single-digit percentage of total auto sales as well. So I think uh, you know that there's room to grow in both of those. We've got a lot of questions on Twitter for you from our audience as well. Most of them are related to Tesla's energy business. What did we learn about the energy business going forward? Will it be more of a star? Yeah, so they did um, highlight the energy business recently. And uh, again, with that um, uh, factory expansion, uh, they, they talked uh, how you know they, they've seen some good growth in that business. Overall, like our our model is mostly focused on vehicles. We think that they should, um, while you know Tesla Energy does offer a really interesting proposition to consumers, and actually we've done some work to show that um, energy storage combined with Bitcoin mining can offer um, a great proposition to even use um, make more use of renewable sources. But you know that aside, what should you focus on for Tesla? Um, in our opinion, it's electric vehicles and autonomy. Those are the two main stories here that I'd watch over the next five years. Yeah, Tasha, really quickly, Luke, uh, Gene Munster of Loot points out that they guided to around 1.8 million vehicles for 23, which if you track a 50% compound annual growth rate doesn't make any sense based on last year's number. Do you see what I'm saying? So- yeah, so last year, um, you know, year over year, yeah, it does fall short of that 50%. But if you go back to 2020, um, you'd, you'd still be coming in over that, you know, few year period at, with the 50% growth rate. So I think that's what they meant in their press release. Of course, I'm sure a lot of people will harp on that figure. Um, but again, I think longer term, the story is electric vehicles are here to stay. And I'd be really worried if I was Ford or the other traditional auto manufacturers where the majority of their install base and the vehicles that they sell are gas-powered cars, which we see declining. Um, That's not going away. And by the way, they don't have a great autonomous solution either. They killed that project. So I, I think that's where the concern should be focused here on the traditional auto market. Tasha, the other question from our audience for you is what does Elon Musk have to say on March the 1st at the Investor Day to convince us of that future that goes beyond Tesla just being a car company? Well, like I said, I mean, I'm excited to hear more about the autonomous vehicle. They had said that they would mass produce a purpose-built autonomous car in 2024. Um, we think that this could totally change Tesla's business model. You know, our price target for 2026 split adjusted is around $1,500 per share. I think over 60% of Tesla's enterprise value, you know, could be attributable to that autonomous ride hill platform. I think it'll have attractive software-like margins. It'll become a recurring revenue stream as opposed to, you know, one-off vehicle sales that we see today. 
going to totally change the game, and they're way ahead. I mean, we see that they have nearly a billion miles driven in full self-driving beta. They have millions of cars on the road collecting data. Um, that's much right. more than competitors. ARC Director of Investment Analysis and Institutional Strategies, Tasha Keeney. Very good to catch up. Thank you for your quick reaction Thank to you. that Tesla print. Meanwhile, another big story that's just broken. IBM has announced job cups. The company will lay off about 1.5% of its worldwide workforce, which amounts to roughly 4,000 jobs. You see the share reaction in after hours there. IBM also released earnings, delivering an upbeat forecast in the wake of its restructuring plans, Cara. Interesting. We're going to talk about structuring of certain businesses a little bit more now because more earnings from more slimmed down AT&T. CEO John Stanky is going to be joining us, we're pleased to say, from San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. We're going to talk earnings a little bit more because AT&T's reaction to them positive over the trading day and this is as they add customers even though perhaps free cash flow forecast missed some analyst expectations we want to dig into what is a slimmer perhaps leaner meaner AT&T with none other than its CEO John Stanky we are joyfully welcoming him to the show six and a half percent higher on the day John just talk to us about what you think the investor base heard and liked is it the fact that you're adding these customers is it that you're able to perhaps share some of the costs going forward well, thanks for having me in. And I, I think what we're seeing maybe today is kind of a continued story and accumulation of the last several quarters. Obviously, uh, to your opening, we've been focusing the business uh, to be much more adept in the communication space. And we started that work in earnest uh, about two and a half years ago, two years ago, and completed the Warner Media transaction early part of last year. And I think investors were stepping back and asking, is this the right place to go? And are they going to be able to execute around it? And I think what you've seen over the last couple of quarters, in particular in the third and fourth quarter, where we continue to grow the business, we continue to pick up the customer base. And now we're seeing the profitability and cash accretion back into the business as we've made those investments and and managed to run the business better. Uh, I think they're starting to gain confidence in that, and rightly so. And, uh, you know, we intend to kind of stay focused on that and keep moving forward with that strategy. Investors confident. What about consumers at the moment, John? You've got a great bird's eye perspective on how much consumers want to be spending. Can you pass on costs? What does the macro look like? Well, you know, we do have a we have a broad scale of consumers that every end of the socioeconomic stream. And I, I think there's probably, you know, a couple of different stories in this. Clearly, the low end of the consumer base is stressed a bit more. Um, we tend to see that exhibit in them taking a little bit more time to pay their bill or to call in and ask for arrangements to pay their bill or possibly recharge a little less frequently if they're a prepaid subscriber. But it's not that they aren't buying the service and it's not that they aren't paying. They're trying to manage it within an overall stressed environment where I think they're making other choices on more discretionary items that they're moving out and just trying to balance their overall their overall uh, obligations. Yes. At the top end of the market, it's still really strong. Um, you know, we're coming off a good volume year. I think it'll temper a little bit as we move into this year, but it's still going to be pretty healthy. And it's just indicative of how ingrained in life, I think, the products and services we sell are. Hey, John, I want to jump on that. You know, the sell side reaction or their conclusion seems to be you're prioritizing financial growth 
over subscriber growth. Yet in the fourth quarter, you added what? 656,000 new phone subscribers, strong growth in the fiber optic business. Are they right? Is it a case of financial growth over subscriber growth or can you achieve both? Oh, it's, it's both. And um, I actually probably would not agree with that conclusion. And we were share accretive this year in the industry in both wireless and in our fixed broadband business. And so, um, you know, we are growing not only share, but we're growing profitability. And it's coming from getting the right customers the right way. And we think we've done a really good job of tuning our offers into the right segments where we've been underpenetrated to be able to gain that share. And we've been working really hard on restructuring our business and our cost structure. And we can do both at the same time. And I think as a result of that, right. we can drive profitability growth at the same time that we're able to grow the business at the top line. Hey, John, we're a technology show. We, we pride ourselves in talking about technology, but I got I to put the hard questions to you as well. So I'll ask it like this. How much visibility have you really got through the end of the year? Is it that 5G continues to drive this growth? People buying new handsets. Is the consumer strong? Or actually, are you being a bit conservative here because you don't know what's going to happen? Well, you know, visibility in general, I would say over the last two years has probably been a bit more challenged given the environment we're in, but I take it at two levels. There's the visibility on the geopolitical side, which I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I'm better than people who do that every day for a living. I, I mean, I don't know when somebody who leads a large country somewhere around the globe is going to do something really silly or stupid that could have a big impact, not only on AT&T, but literally every for-profit enterprise around the globe. That I have no visibility to or any better visibility than anybody else. But the visibility on how the economy is performing, I think we have reasonable visibility. I think we've been pretty conservative in our assumptions moving into 2023. I would point back to our performance in 2022 as a point. Inflation clearly peaked last year. We were hit by that. Um, we were able to navigate through that through a lot of good management techniques, combination of managing our cost structure as well as ensure we were driving the right value into our consumer base. Mm. Um, I don't think we're going to see an environment that's uh, probably more dynamic than what we saw last year. We'll have new challenges to work through. But this is a management team that's shown itself to be pretty adaptable and pretty agile in being able to adjust to those things. And I, and I feel our assumptions on our guidance are, are consistent with what we can do there. It feels like you're getting creative too, John. Of course, you're focused on the good things the investors want to see. Dividends, debt payment, of course, after what had been a lot of building up of debt over M&A and now the unwinding of that. I'm interested in how you're doing joint ventures. I was interested, for example, in the BlackRock gigapower deal and the way that you're going to be offering fiber. Is this about ensuring that you're spreading the risk as you still continue to invest in the fiber plan? It's a combination of things. Certainly, it's a dynamic of taking a new investment thesis that, frankly, is probably not well proven in the market today and sharing some of that risk as we prove it in. And uh, I'm trying to be responsive to share owners and ensure that as we consume capital and invest it, that they can gain confidence that we can do that wisely. And I think we've done a really good job of that in our traditional lines of business over the last couple of years. Since this is a new approach, um, what I've told the street and what I want to do here is make sure that as we put the first tranche of investment in, that we can come back and show them that we can do this right and earn a, a very competitive return with it. And to the extent that we do that and when we do that, we'll, of course, 
put our foot on the accelerator and go a little bit faster and do a little bit more. And this allows us to do it with a partner. It allows us to offload some of the risk during that prove-in period so that I think it keeps everybody comfortable on the continued income production capabilities of the existing business while trying to find a new vector for growth. The new vector for growth, everyone said 5G is it, the way we're all going to have connected devices, the way industry is going to connect. Is it here in the here and now, John? It's not here in its full maturity. And I, I think what I would first say is we shouldn't underestimate what I will call the meat and potatoes aspect of investing in the new 5G spectrum and the new 5G equipment, which allowed for more capacity on wireless networks and what wireless operators have done with that capacity is have, have individuals move into new devices and buy up on more robust plans with higher value, and that's driven ARPUs up. And without that capacity and without that increased performance, that wouldn't have taken place. But that's not the be-all, end-all to 5G. The be-all, yeah. end-all to 5G is the capabilities that it brings in to enable what you were talking about before I came on the show, which is things like autonomous vehicles so that if Tesla decides to bring a vehicle to market and they need to have persistent, high-quality connectivity everywhere that vehicle goes, that's when 5G is really going to shine. And the networks are just getting now to the point where they're more ubiquitous and scaled enough to do those types of things. And I do believe right. that will open up new revenue streams. All right, AT&T CEO, John Stanky, I'm glad you've been watching the show and that coverage of Tesla. We'll get you on in another 90 days time and see how you're doing. It's finally come out. Meta has indeed announced its decision to reinstate former President Trump on, of course, Instagram and Facebook. Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner joins us now to discuss, and we knew it's what Trump wanted. That's right. Yeah. And we kind of expected, I think, this is what Facebook was going to do, too, because what we said and what they'd said was they needed to basically figure out, is there still a heightened risk of, uh, you know, violence in this case, right? That's why he was suspended on after January 6th. And, you know, it's been two years, right? So I think they it would have been hard for them to come up with a good reason to keep him off. Instead, they're bringing him back and saying, if he has more violations, he'll be suspended again quite quickly. Right. And they also said it will end in the coming weeks, extends to Facebook and Instagram, you know, I thought we, would, we knew this was coming, right? Yeah, it's, it's not unexpected, especially w with what we saw from Twitter, right? He's been back on Twitter or could be back on Twitter for the last couple months. He has not yet tweeted. So I think the big question now is when will we actually hear from him, right? Facebook was very helpful for him during the 2016 election. He has a huge base there. I imagine he'll be back on Facebook. I just right. don't know how quickly. Yeah, interesting that, of course, the digital world acquisition shares were falling on the back of this. This is obviously a new social media foray that right, he'd been making right. himself. Ultimately, will we see Meta criticized? Uh, of course, but they're going to be criticized either direction. All right. Kurt Wagner. Tesla is making more cars than they can sell. They're doing whatever they can to sell cars, and customers haven't responded that enthusiastically yet. Tesla is running into kind of a buzzsaw of issues, many of which have nothing to do with Elon Musk. You've got uh, interest rates going up, which makes its cars more expensive. You have problems in China, which is one of its biggest markets. And you have competition from rival automakers. You know, Ford is bringing out these cars that weren't around a few years ago that are really competitive. Customers are starting to take a second look at other brands. But really, there's this other problem. 
Musk desperately wants to be considered funny. And it is this desire, which we see play out every day on Musk's Twitter account, that may be starting to hurt Musk's most important asset, his own reputation. At the end of the last quarter in December, the company started frantically cutting prices. And, and you might think maybe they would have a, a, you know, an epic quarter, as Musk predicted. In fact, they did not meet expectations. That sent the stock down, further kind of creating this sense of failure and disarray. You're starting to see investors, analysts, even some people who are big fans of Tesla and big fans of Musk say something that would have almost been unthinkable a couple years ago, which is that Musk needs to step back. He needs to either find a way to spend less time on Twitter or if he's committed to Twitter to spend less time with Tesla. And it was absolutely fascinating read that Max Chafkin and Dana Hull had on the Bloomberg right. Business Week today. Front cover, basically just brutal ana analysis of how he's not that funny ultimately, but his decision to try and get these laughs has almost eroded some value of Elon Musk. Interesting, Tasha Kearney, of course, from ARK saying, at the moment, that isn't an issue for Tesla going forward. Yes. She thinks that ultimately the CEO is still a benefit rather than a hindrance. But I thought there was a great quote in this story that just basically said, look, you're not going to boast about you buying a Tesla anymore. And they're saying it's somewhere between basic and cringe if you're going to be saying that you're about yeah, to buy look, the, the other side of the argument is that this is all part of Musk's master plan. Yes. You know, the focus all on him, free advertising, free discussion around, although he bought Twitter for $44 billion, but you know what I mean. And you look at the regulatory filings and Tesla says time and time again, Elon Musk is centra central to our future success. You know, we talk about key man risk, they're intertwined, Tesla and the Elon Musk story. Now, speaking of Twitter, a new Twitter whistleblower has told Congress that the company continued to violate privacy and data security protections even after Musk's takeover. Bloomberg's Emily Birnbaum is in D.C. Give us the details of what this whistleblower is claiming. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, so this new Twitter whistleblower, um, a lot of his allegations focus on this program internally at Twitter called God Mode, which allowed any Twitter employee to access any Twitter user's uh, account either to delete tweets or to access uh, or to tweet themselves. Um, and essentially the whistleblower says the FTC should really look into this because the company is flagrantly violating its consent decree. Indeed, your story says the complaint was shared with the Justice Department, the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, say, and members of Congress. Ultimately, where does this get taken, Emily? So the FTC already opened an inquiry into Twitter's privacy practices last year after a different Twitter whistleblower came forward. So that was Peter Zacco, um, also known as Mudge in the hacking community. Um, he was Twitter's uh, head of privacy and he came out, you know, there was a congressional hearing. He said there are horrible security and privacy violations across this platform. So the FTC had already opened that investigation. Um, and they have just broadened it. Um, and this is probably going to be the next thing that investigators are looking at as they seek to um, fine the company. The question still goes on about regulation across the board. Emily Birnbaum there on all focus on Twitter. But let's turn our attention to the other key social media player that has taken market share from a lot of these players. And Ed, it's TikTok. Right. And we get, again, focus from Congress on whether or not they want to ban TikTok outright. They've, of course, been a Republican senator, Josh Hawley, tweeting that he will present a bill to ban the popular app 
nationwide. Now, of course, we're already getting little tidbits, aren't we, in terms of, well, the Texas University is trying to ensure that they can front run any sort of federal action here, but it really is building. It's specific action of how... Well, in this case, the the Texas governor statewide is trying to remove access to to TikTok. I've got a question when we get into it about actually who's really under pressure here, because state level, right, what we're all waiting on is a federal level response to this story. Yeah. Let's get to it. Let's ask some more questions. Let's get Alex Barenka, who, of course, covers this company so in depth. Alex, I guess slightly unsurprising that the banging of the drum keeps on coming. It keeps coming, and Josh Hawley has been uh, one of the loudest bangers of that drum. This newest bill is actually one of two that are now starting to float around in Congress, with Josh Hawley uh, tweeting that he believes that TikTok, because it's owned by a Chinese company, is a, quote, backdoor into Americans' lives. He's worried about potential data sharing to the Chinese government, so he is putting this bill through. Now, you talked about pressure. Uh, There's obviously pressure here on TikTok, uh, but there's also pressure on this kind of national security review that's been going on for years under the Biden administration. You'll note, whether it's the Texas governor or uh, Josh Hawley, the senator, there are a lot of Republicans who are being very loud about TikTok. It does seem like the Democrats are being a little bit quieter, perhaps because Biden's administration is the one who is kind of doing this in-depth national security review of TikTok. It seems that they are kind of waiting and deferring to that process to come to a conclusion before they on or speak really publicly about right. what they think should happen with TikTok writ large. Well, and TikTok's response was to say, okay, we reach a deal with Oracle where we have US user data housed on Oracle servers which are domiciled in the United States. So access to user data was the worry. It seems like that's not even the concern anymore. It goes deeper than that. And this conversation shifted, and and we started talking about it um, on the show before it shifted in Congress. Uh, TikTok's feed is basically decided by an algorithm. Everybody's feed is different. It's personalized. That concern that there could be some influence on that feed or influence on the most influential creators on TikTok, that that could actually be um, the, the idea that's coming front and center. You'll remember the last time we talked really big about influence on social media when it had a big impact in the political sphere. Uh, The very first time was kind of in 2016 around the election. I know we're 18 months out from the next U.S. presidential election, but as, you know, Congress gets its feet on the ground, this new Congress gets its feet on the ground, I'm sure they are thinking about how a bad actor, or if they see China as a bad actor, how they might be able to influence the feed of an app that's becoming stickier and stickier with folks spending more time on it in America in particular. Alex, it's an interesting global story as well, isn't it? And I'm not sure how much you can speak to it, but of course, India took its first steps, banned it. Europe is interestingly, considering the amount of European regulation that front runs the US, they really haven't been as focused on TikTok as the United States has. From this perspective, when we do have division among Democrats, Republicans, are they going to come together over this, do you think? Uh, Whether they come together formally, it seems like at least their voices are coming together. In the past few weeks, Europe did start to turn an eye to TikTok. You saw the um, European uh, regulators who are talking a lot about the new um, data security acts that's coming down this year in Europe, basically uh, going to TikTok CEO saying, look, 
we're not happy with your content moderation as it stands today. If if we if these new acts came in place today and not in September, the company might be in a little bit of hot water when it comes to uh, EU data security laws. So uh, it seems like whether or not they formally come together and follow India's lead and banning it, or if it just seems to be kind of a really heated moment where folks are taking notice of TikTok, the voices are getting louder. EU tends to be has tended to be a bit stricter with its uh, data privacy laws. Uh, we know that Congress can be um, a little bit of a uh, tough place to navigate when it comes to bills. So perhaps the U.S. will be a step behind. But it does seem like across the globe, um, TikTok has eyes on it from all of uh, kind of the right people for consumer protection and some of the wrong people if you're in the seat of the company. Bloomberg's Alex Barinka, just terrific reporting on all things TikTok, not just today, but over the course of course of a week. Tomorrow, timely, FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr will join us here on Bloomberg Technology Live to talk all things TikTok in an exclusive interview, one Caroline that we've been waiting a little while for. Yeah, I can't wait for that. Meanwhile, let's turn our attention to crypto for a moment because well the bankrupt lender Genesis is working to get some money back from the man that is known is Bitcoin Jesus. Now, overall, Genesis says Roger Ver owes them more than $20 million, alleging that he failed to settle options, transactions that expired in December. Ver, on early backer, of course, of Bitcoin, said on Twitter that he has the funds to pay Genesis, but this is a breach of their agreement. Now, coming up, should we go to space? A major rocket launch in the United States, and it wasn't SpaceX. This is Bloomberg. Salesforce. You might have seen a sprinkling of celebrity around this company. Maybe it's Matthew McConaughey in an ad. Maybe it's Will I Am performing at Dreamforce, their big marketing event. What about giving actual corporate advice? That's what some of the reporting is at the moment. The Mark Benioff, the CEO of this massive software company, has been depending on celebrities for some pretty high-level corporate discussions. Now, the question for many an activist investor now, and there's three involved in the stock, remember, is... Is the CEO distracted and is he really being focused on profit where he should be? And of course, this is some reporting coming out of the Financial Times. Right. You know what they, what they call him? Celeb schmoozing CEO. But it is interesting that at least one or two people they spoke to have been really caught off guard by them coming out of, these celebrities coming out of quite high-level conversations. So Mark Benioff has lost two co-CEOs in the last few years. We're talking about two pretty well-known celebrities having major influence in the company. Can I take you back, now that you're here in San Francisco, yeah. to 2016 when that Salesforce tower was first built? Yeah. And at the, at the time, bear with me, there were stories and reports in the media about a, a zen master living with Mark Benioff in his house, Master Han, a Vietnamese Buddhist monk. And when he was building Salesforce Tower, apparently he took under advisement what these Buddhist monks had to say about building the ultimate space for employee relaxation. So all I'm saying is he has a track record of seeking guidance from those not normally associated with and, the world of tech. <laughs> well said. And maybe I think there was a lot of coverage at the time about, well, the Salesforce Tower actually sinking rather than staying stable. Right. That was all the narrative Not blaming the Buddhist monks for that. No, exactly. exactly. But what's so interesting is that it's these activists that come on board and start right. questioning this behavior. Ultimately, 
I thought it was interesting you're questioning his philanthropy. I've never heard many an investor really question the deep philanthropic right. in- agendas of, of some and his billionaire. close association with this city in particular. Yeah, exactly. Is, I can understand worries about a distraction by bringing in the wrong celebrity for technological advice. Well, I am. I know he has a gadget or two, but I don't know how much he knows about software right. sales. But ultimately, I do think it's notable that I wouldn't want to see him being distracted from philanthropy personally for the focus on profitability. Yeah, but you know, we talked this week about Dreamforce, the expense of Dreamforce and what it is. Yeah. You know, it's a CRM, right? But Salesforce is this brand that everyone knows. And clearly there's been a benefit for it for that. Yeah, now investors, a big sales guy, isn't he? Right. But investors now saying, okay, get this under control. Yeah. Profits first. It's the new Profits first. Maybe it's a, I don't think it's a Buddhist mantra. Right. It's a mantra coming from activists. Unionization in tech is a global discussion and Amazon workers in Coventry in the UK took part in a a historic strike disrupting the e-commerce giant's operations for the first time in that nation. Lizzie Burden has more from there. We're in Coventry in the English Midlands where Amazon workers are striking for the first time in the UK. You can see the GMB union behind me has set up camp at the entrance to the warehouse and it's stopping workers on their way in asking if they want to join the strike, join the union. So far about 300 workers are expected to have joined at least and it's all about pay. They're asking for a 50% raise, 5-0, to 50 £15 an hour. This rise isn't going to impact how Amazon, Amazon does business. What it will do is actually start to bring some of that money that Amazon generates back into the economy. Now, Amazon has its own problems. It's having to deal with people adjusting back to their pre-pandemic spending habits. It's already said that it's going to cut about 18,000 jobs uh, across its branches around the world. That's about 1% of its total workforce. The biggest cull in its near 30-year history. And here in the UK, it's closing three warehouses, opening two more, but it's adding to the discontent. This is a company that is hostile to unions. Uh, This is a company that doesn't take health and safety seriously, and this is a company that simply isn't paying its workers enough. Now, what's also significant about this strike is it shows that the discontent has spread beyond the public sector to the private sector. No longer is it just the chaos across travel, healthcare, teaching, the civil service. Now it's the private sector too. It gives new meaning to the warnings about a wage price spiral because if Amazon were to hike its prices in response to covering this bigger wage bill, it would add surely to the inflation problems that the UK is facing. Bloomberg's Lizzie Burden there. Now, from down on earth to up in space, Rocket Lab had its first US launch Last night, you can see it there on your screen, and I'm delighted to say the CEO of the company, Peter Beck, joins us now on the phone. He's on the move. One question from our audience for you. How many launches are going to come from the United States this year, Peter? Yeah, so thanks very much. Uh, so somewhere between four and six, um, and we'll probably about 15 launches in total uh, between our global launch sites. There, there was a moment where you, you, we see on our screens, launch successful, we're waiting, it's tense, it's scary. Are the satellites going to deploy, Peter? And they deployed. How traumatic was that for you in the moment? 
Oh, well, I knew what was going on, so not very traumatic at all. Um, uh, we have ground stations <laughs> placed all around the world, um, and one of the ground stations uh, went offline, as they do occasionally. Uh, it was one in Australia, so there was probably a snake crawled around it and tied it up or something like that. Um, but 20 minutes later, we had another pass of another ground station, um, and we had contact with the with the vehicle over Africa, so we're all we're all happy. Um, but yeah. uh, for those watching, yeah, it was probably uh, um, w- wondering what was going on. But uh, yep, no, all all successful and um, uh, happy to to see. Uh, uh, 155th customer on orbit. Peter, quite an emotional ride for an investor as well, because the stock soared. Eddie was pointing it out, pre-market. It was up, up, up and away, and then seemed to sort of crash back down to earth. I'm interested as to what you think happened to the stock market reaction. Oh, look, I mean, within the space sector especially, but I mean, uh, in, in general, there's very little correlation, um, frustratingly, between uh, events. So, you know, we, we went to the moon last year for NASA and a, a very historic mission, and, and uh, and you know the stock didn't didn't really change either. So uh, you know, I think in this in this current market, there's, um, there's there's very very kind of little or or um, uh, oblique influences on on the stock price. But uh, you know we just continue to to, to execute, and, and ultimately um, you know the market will catch up. Hey Peter, how tight is capacity right now, industry wide, relative demand to demand? If you did more launches, would you be able to fill the 300 kilogram payload uh, quota? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, we're the dominant force in, in the small dedicated launch uh, globally right now, and um, you know, I think I think we, we we fly the vast majority of everything there. Uh, Where the you know, there's a real capacity crunch is around about in the 2025 to 2027 timeframe or thereabouts on medium-sized launch, and that's why we're developing the neutron launch vehicle, which is a you know significantly larger right. um, you know launch vehicle to meet that market. Well, well, Pete- Peter, on that, I got a lot of questions on Twitter when they found out you were coming on. When is Neutron going to be ready, and does it just render Electron obsolete? Yeah, no, so, so Neutron will be on the pad in 2024, and no, it doesn't. Um, Electron services a very important uh, small satellite dedicated market, so no, it certainly doesn't make it obsolete. Rocket Lab founder and CEO Peter Beck, just an astonishing achievement, you know, bearing in mind how dominant space is in this industry, Caro, and they did it. Their first U.S. launch. What about this net? You were telling me all about so, a helicopter with nets that sometimes catch these. Another stuff. time, but they want it to be reusable. They're going to catch the booster with a helicopter midair. They haven't quite got there yet. We'll get him back on to talk about it. Let's do that. Meanwhile, of course, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. But you have got to stay tuned for tomorrow, Thursday. We have SEC Commissioner Brendan Carr. Don't forget, a lot to recap. So check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple. It's been a busy week. Layoffs continue. Earnings continue. And we will be across everything out of the technology sector. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.